continue our study of John chapter 5, and tonight we're going to study John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Now, in John 6, 1 to 15, we have a very familiar story. That's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And I think the best thing to do is to simply get it in front of us by reading. So let's take our Bibles and turn over to John chapter 6. Read the first 15 verses. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on those who were diseased. Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Where shall we buy bread? that these may be. But this he said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him and said, Two hundred denarii's worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take just a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sitting down, and likewise to the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above that which they had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force, that is, kidnap him, to make him a king. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now here's the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And you remember that uh, we have in John chapter 5 to 12, we have four controversies of Jesus with the Jewish leadership. John chapter 5 is 1, John chapter 6 is 2, John 7 and 8 is the third one, and John 9 and 10 is the fourth one. John 5 and 6 go together. John 5 focuses on the person of Christ. John 6 focuses on the work of Christ. John chapter 5, what is the question in John chapter 5? Is Jesus God? Is he equal with the Father? What is the claim that Jesus made? My Father works up until now, and I also work. He claims to co-equality and cooperation with the Father in his work. And they saw that, and they said in John 5.18 that he's guilty of blasphemy because he claims to be equal with God. And then the Lord Jesus begins his sermon at that point, in which he claims equality with God, in which he claims three great divine prerogatives. The prerogative to give spiritual life, the prerogative to give resurrection life, and third, the prerogative to judge all men. Then he marshals five witnesses to support his claim. So John 5 focuses on the person of Christ. Now when we come to John 6, John 6 focuses on the work of Christ. And the miracle that Jesus performs is an illustration and prepares for the sermon that will follow. He, he multiplies the loaves, he breaks the loaves, multiplies them, and feeds all the people. Then in his sermon, he says, I am the, what? Bread of life. And that bread will be broken, and you must eat my body and drink my blood if you want life in yourself. The sermon flows out of the miracle. The miracle is on the bread. The sermon focuses on Jesus, the bread of life. Now, let's uh, look at a couple things by way of background. The average uh, reader wouldn't, I suppose, would not, uh, wouldn't come unless he studied it to realize that there's one year time between John chapter 5 
John chapter 6. Well, you take your Bible and turn over to Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 14. First of all, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, we read that Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, and there's the call of the disciples. Then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we have the early ministry of Christ in Galilee. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching the synagogues. Now keep your finger there and go over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Now, do you have that? You got you keep both of them there. All right, Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place. Time is now late. Send the multitude away, saying, We go in the villages to buy themselves food. Now, you look up here. Or right, you've got it in your hand. You've got all that material. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. All of that goes between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. See? Ten chapters covering almost one year's time goes between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. All the material between the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with Matthew 5, 1, up until Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, all of that goes between John 5 and John 6. Now let's go back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. What John does in John chapter 4, or John chapter 5 and 6, pardon me, is to give us um, the uh, introductory uh, the introductory um, event in the Galilean ministry of Christ and then the uh, turning point in the Galilean ministry of Christ. And we would start it, we'd start it this way. Um, here's the one, here, here is the, there are four Passovers, one, two, three, four, on which he was crucified. Now, John chapter 4, verse 44, 42 to 54, the healing of that son, of that nobleman, it takes place right at the beginning of his Galilean ministry. It takes place before the call of the first disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Then in John 5, 1, we have number 2 Passover. That's in chapter 5, John chapter 5. Then in John chapter 6, we have number 3 Passover. John skips over, and in there goes all of the material between Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, to Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. John skips over one whole year of the Galilean ministry of Christ. Why? Because it wasn't germane to his purpose. And all of that is skipped over. Now what John does, if you look up here, what John really does, he does two things. Here, Jesus, in John 5, is rejected by the Jews in Judea. Here in John 6, he's rejected by the Jews in Galilee. There's a double rejection here. John 5, the Jews in Judea, the leadership. John 6, the Jews in Galilee, the leadership. Secondly, he gives us, apart from that, he gives us two events here. Apart from that one in John 5. This is the opening event in the Galilean ministry of Christ, and this, John 6, is the turning event in the Galilean ministry of Christ. Jesus reaches his pinnacle of popularity in John chapter 6. So John gives us, in John chapter 4, the opening event in the Galilean ministry, the healing of that uh, that nobleman's son, then he gives us that event in John chapter 5, which takes place in Judea, then he gives us the critical turning point 
in the Galilean ministry of Christ, which is the feeding of the 5,000. So John is selected, but that's exactly what he told us in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, the miracle itself, we just read it. The miracle itself is the only miracle of Jesus that's described in all four Gospels, with exception of one other miracle. What is that? The resurrection. Apart from the miracle of the resurrection, there's only one miracle that's described in all four Gospels, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. And that underscores the fact that this miracle is an important miracle. Now, how do we interpret this miracle? Well, there are three ways that men interpret this miracle. There's only one way we ought to, but there are three ways they do. The first way is to say that the miracle took place in the hearts of men. That is to say, and this is popularized by Bruce Martin many, many years ago, when he wrote that book, The Man Nobody Knows, and second book, The Book Nobody Knows. And in that, uh, in, in those two books, in one of them, uh, Bruce Martin takes this approach to the miracle. The Martin walking on water wasn't really walking on water. It was foggy that day. Jesus was on the land, but since it was foggy, the disciples thought he was walking on water. The feeding of the 5,000 uh, is often interpreted this way, that Jesus took the five loaves and the, five, and the two fish and broke and gave to a few people around him. And there were hundreds of people out there who had their lunches, but they were hiding them, didn't want to share them. So when they saw the example of Jesus, when they saw Jesus sharing what he had, then they got out their lunches they broke their lunches and distributed the people around them. Now, you all smile, but may I say, may I say that's a very common approach to this miracle. It's very common. The miracle occurred in the heart. Then the second way that some interpret is that they say that this is a sacramental miracle. That is, that Jesus took these loaves and fishes just like we do at the Lord's Supper, just broke off a little weeny bit and distributed everybody just a little bit because it's a, it's an illustration of the sacrament, they say, of the Lord's Supper. And they interpret it that way. The third way to interpret it is the way that I would interpret it and the way that all Bible believers have interpreted and that is that it literally happened, that Jesus Christ multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed a crowd of anywhere from 10 to 20,000. 5,000 men. But we know from the other Gospels that there were also women and children. So I suppose there may have been 12 to 15,000 people all told and that Jesus multiplied miraculously the... Uh, bread and the fish. Now, if Jesus is God, we don't have any problem with that here. He made it in the first place back in Genesis 1. He made it out of nothing. He can certainly take something and make more of it. And we, I interpret it literally, have no problem with it whatsoever. Now, why is this miracle feeding the 5,000 important? Well, it's important, first of all, because it's the turning point Christ's ministry. This is the watershed in Christ's ministry. We look at John chapter 6, verse 60. John 6, verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who could hear it? That is, who could accept it? And Jesus knew it himself, the disciples murmured. When he knew that his disciples murmured it, he said to them, Does this offend you? Skip down to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples went back, walked with him no more. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. He, in John chapter 6, he hit the peak of popularity. Now he's on the other side of the mountain, on the Tobago. 
this place is going to lead eventually to Calvary. John 6 is important because it's the turning point in Christ's ministry. Secondly, it's important because it indicates to us a double rejection. The rejection of the Jews in Judea in John 5, the rejection of the Jews in Galilee in John 6. Furthermore, it shows us the kind of Messiah that these men, especially the leadership, wanted, and we'll see that in a minute or two. And fourth, it's important because it's the perfect type of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Now, let's look at this quickly. Well, I want to get, save enough time that we can look at some lessons at the end. There are three things in this outline, three things in this story. You have them there. What's the first one? The occasion. What's the second one? The miraculous sign. No, no, no. The occasion is the occasion to the whole thing. See, there are four points in this chapter. The occasion, chapter one, chapter 6, 1 to 14. And then secondly, the issue, John 6, 15 to 24. Third, the discourse of the servant, chapter 6, 25 to 59. And four, the sequel, chapter 6, verse 60 to 71. Tonight, we're going to take up the first one, the occasion, the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 1 to 14. Now, under that, there are three things. Do you have them on your outline? Or did the mimeograph machine slip? All right, what's number one, the historical setting? What's number two, the miraculous sign? Number three, the popular effect of the miracle. Now, do you know why I take a minute to do that? Because I've learned from long experience, even with students in classes here, that, you know, if a person doesn't see where we're going, they'll lose me, or I'll lose them, one of the two, and they're gone for a half hour. And then they come up later on and say, uh, where was that in the outline? And my stock answer is, well, now, what did you, what does it look like it was on the outline? Okay, so you want to keep that outline in front of you. All right, now, first of all, the historical setting, verses 1 to 4. The locale, time, company, occasion, motive. Let's read John chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. After these things, that's a very general statement. And after these things means the things that happened in Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and part of 14. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Galilee, which is about 14 miles long, about 18 miles wide, went by three names. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It was called the Sea of Tiberias. It was called the Sea of Echinera. Sea of Kinnereth. What by those three names? Now the Jews would know it by the name Sea of Galilee. But the Greeks and the Romans to whom John wrote would know it by the name Sea of Tiberias. It was named after a little city named Tiberias. Down in the southeast corner of the of Sea of Galilee. And Tiberius was named after one of the Roman emperors, whose name was Tiberius Caesar. So to the Romans and the Greeks, this little sea would be known as the Sea of Tiberius. That's why John puts it in. That's why John, did you ever observe it? That's why John interprets these things. When he used the word Messiah, he says, which is being interpreted? The Christ. He knows that the Greeks and Romans whom he writes do not know Hebrew. They don't know that the Messiah comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, so he interprets it and says Christ, which comes from the Greek Pasteo, to anoint. So they didn't know it by the name of Galilee, they didn't know it by the name of Tiberius, and he gives both names. And a great multitude, verse 2, followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on those who were diseased. Now, where did this great multitude come from? Well, probably they were coming for the Passover. They were coming from Asia Minor. They are coming probably from Greece. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them were coming from these lands up here north and east of the Sea of Galilee. And when they came down into Palestine, they had to come down normally. They could take the coastal route or they would take the valley route. And the valley route went right around the Sea of Galilee. 
So at this time, the Passover season, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews from Galilee and from outside Galilee who were walking those roads. Now, here was a Jew from Asia Minor. He got down in that vicinity. Well, it took several weeks to get down there. Got down that vicinity. What does he hear floating around? The rumor of a great miracle worker. Now, if you heard the rumor of a man over in Collierville or Forest City that was opening blind eyes, really, and unstopping ears for death, really, and raising dead men, really, what would you do if we were happening over Forest City? Well, would you go to Forest City? You wouldn't? Well, then you don't have any imagination for this. I'll tell you, I would. <laughs> I'd be heading over to Forest City, especially if you raised the dead. See, I'd go over to Forest City. That's what they did. And thousands and thousands of them followed Jesus, and uh, he had gone from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern, the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he had gone up calls it a mountain, it's really a hill, less than 2,000 feet. Sea of Galilee is 630 feet below sea level. And up on the northeastern shore, there's a great plain that's grassy in the springtime, and it was springtime, Passover's in April, grassy, and beyond that was a hill. And Jesus had gone up to that hill to retire. Why had he gone up there? Why had he crossed over there left busy Capernaum to get over here. Well, he wanted to retire, to retire to pray and to bring his disciples and to rest. Secondly, to get away from Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had put to death already John the Baptist. And Jesus knew that he was after him also. And Jesus wasn't afraid of him, but he didn't want to precipitate his death before the hour on God's calendar. So he went over here to rest and to bring his disciples to be with them, to get away from the multitude. But they found out where he was, and they followed him. So verse 3, Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. The Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Now, I think he puts that in. He puts that statement in that the Passover was near in order to explain to us why there were so many thousands of people in that vicinity at that time. So here's the historical setting of this occasion. And the case of the miracle, of course, is the hunger of the multitude and the compassion of Jesus. Now we go to the second thing, which is the performance of the miracle, the, the miraculous sign, John 6, 5 to 13, the miraculous sign. We have three things here, two things. First, the preparations for the miracle. Secondly, the performance of the miracle. First, the preparation. Verses 5 to 10. We have a question, an observation, and a command. All right, let's read these three things. First, the question. Verse 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Where shall we buy bread? that these people may eat. There's the question. Verse 6 tells us why he asked the question. This he said to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. You think, you know, Philip was from Bethsaida. There were two Bethsaidas. Bethsaida on the east and Bethsaida on the west. Philip was from Bethsaida. Philip knew this territory. Now, do you think that Jesus asked uh, Philip this question because Philip knew where the grocery stores were? He knew where all of the 7-Elevens and Lowe's were open late at night. He knew all about that, and Jesus didn't know. Jesus knew all the grocery stores everywhere. He was omniscient. He didn't ask him for that. He asked Philip this question to test Philip, verse 7, verse 6. This he said to test Philip. Philip and the others, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, what was he testing in Philip? The Lord often tested his disciples. While he was testing Philip about two things, 
He was testing Philip to see whether or not Philip and the other disciples had a true sympathy and compassion for the man in need. That's the first thing. He was testing Philip and the other disciples to see whether Philip and the other disciples had a true sympathy for these people who were hungry and who were in need. What did the disciples say to Jesus? The gospel here doesn't tell us, but the others do. Does anybody know what they said to Jesus? Had said it a couple of hours ago. What did they say? Send them away. See, they looked at these people as trouble. Jesus looked at them as need. They looked at them as trouble. Send them away. That's what they said a few hours prior to this, according to another gospel. Now here, about two hours later, getting dark, Jesus hasn't sent them away, and now he asked Philip, say, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? Sun is setting, it's too late, it's almost too late, it's afternoon, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? He asked them that question, number one, to test Philip, the disciples, to see whether or not they had true sympathy for men in their needs. Second reason he asked them was to test the disciples, to test Philip and the disciples to see whether or not they had remembered what Jesus had already done and that he was able to perform miracles. Had he performed some miracles already? How many? Well, at least three that we know of and many more. What did he do in John chapter 2? Turn the water into wine. What did he do in John chapter 4? Heal that nobleman's son even over a long distance. What did he do in John chapter 5? Instantly and perfectly heal that man who had been lame for 37 years. Healed him so well that he's able to take up his bed and walk away. And in addition to that, John chapter 2, 23 to 25, he performed many other miracles. They had seen him. They had seen all these miracles. But their memory was short. So they said to Jesus, what? Send them away. Their memory is short. You say, how sad that is. You say, they shouldn't have done that. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. God meets our needs in a terrible, critical situation. We get in the same kind of situation a month later, what happens? We begin to worry. And we begin to connive. We forget what God did a month before that. And God does something for us in a wonderful way, and sometimes we don't take time to thank him for it. So we're just like Philip. See, Jesus was testing him on two things. Did he have true sympathy? And did he have faith in the almighty power of Christ to perform the miracle? May I say to you, and I hope you'll listen, that no man ought to go in the gospel ministry unless he believes these two things, unless he exhibits these two qualities. He ought not to go in the gospel ministry unless he has a... Uh, true compassion for the souls of men. He ought not to go in the gospel ministry unless he believes that God is able to do the miraculous, transform human life. Jesus was testing Philip at this point. So then he goes after testing Philip, asking this question. Verse 7, Philip answered him and says, 200 penny worth, or a denarius. Penny is a denarius. The worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Now, all the commentators will say a denarius is worth about 16 cents. Well, that may have been, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And a denarius now would be in equivalent, would be worth, say, 32 cents or 54 cents. The best way to determine is say that a denarius was a penny worth. A denarius would be the equivalent of about a man's wages for one day. So the 200 penny worth would be the equivalent of 200 days wages. 
Now, why Philip said that, I don't know. Why he didn't say, you know, 5,000 denarius, I don't know. Maybe he had walked around the others and say, how much money you got in your pants right now, see? And they all pulled it together, and they said, well, we got 200 denarius. And, and so he said, and Jesus asked them, they, uh, Andrew said, Philip said, listen, all we can get up here is 200. But that's not enough even to make a dent. Look out there. 10, 12,000. That won't even make a dent. Better send them away, Lord. We can handle this. And you sure can. So we better send them away. But he's looking at human resources. All right, then we come to Andrew pitches in here. Andrew comes in. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says, well, there's a lad here. He has five barley loaves. Now, a barley loaf wasn't what we think when we get from Kroger. See, it wasn't a loaf. It'd be more like what we get when we think of a pancake. It was a hard pancake. See, that's the kind of pancakes my children make. Hard. <laughs> but the hard pancake, a pancake that was real hard, you know, about this big, and you just broke a little bit of it off. And that's what these were. They weren't loaves of bread. Wouldn't God made a much of a dent anyway, even if they were loaves of bread. But they were happened to be just kind of small, flat, barley loaves that would like pancakes. And this little boy's mother probably tucked in. You know, the imagination can run wild, and you find it in the commentary. Mother said, now, uh, Jimmy or Charlie, or Methuselah, whatever his name was, you want to, I'm packing you a bag here, you got five little barley loaves and two little fish, like sardines, no, not big catfish, little sardines, and you can eat those, but, you know, be careful you don't lose them. And this, I don't know, did this boy come up, tell Andrew he had a little to help out? I don't know, but Andrew spotted it, came to Jesus and said, there's a little lad here, he's got five of them, Five loaves, five pancakes, and two little fish. But, but, what are they among so many? See, both Philip and Andrew were calculating on human resources, not exercising faith in God's resources. And you know, I find that we are uh, often told to do that. I find right here, confession of slips of the soul, I find that I tend to do that here at Mid-South Bible College. I tend to think in terms of calculating human resources instead of faith in God's almighty ability. What ought we to do? Both of them. Both of them. Count for I tried that one day. It didn't work. <laughs> oh, didn't work at all. <laughs> That's why I carried that dent around on the head for a while, see. <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, it, that's the way they do it. And did they mean the lady sat down? I have no way of knowing whether they did. 5,000 hungry men was enough without the ladies and children. But if he could feed 5,000 men with those five loaves and two fishes, he could feed 100,000. So we have no problem here. So Jesus said, verse 10, make them sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. That's a great plain there. And in springtime, it's very grassy. They sat down. Men sit, the men sat down in number about 5,000, and they sat down in groups of 50 and 100, another gospel writer tells us. Then verses 11, we have the performance of the miracle itself, 11 to 13. And there are a few steps here. First of all, Jesus took the loaves. Jesus took the loaves from the little boy. Second, he gave thanks publicly so that when you go out to uh, Steak and Eggs or Crystal <laughs> or wherever it is, you might go. Why, there's nothing wrong in offering thanks if we don't put it on. I don't think we ought to pray loud so that everybody can hear us, but to pray quietly and offer thanks to God for the food. We ought to be grateful to God, whatever the circumstances may be. And Jesus gave thanks. 
Then third, he, he, he broke the bread and gave to the disciples. He broke the bread and gave to the disciples. Then fourth, the disciples uh, distributed to the people. And then fifth, he asked them to pick up the fragments. Verses 11 to 13. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sitting down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as, as much as the people wanted. How much did Jesus Christ give to them? As much as they wanted. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So he fed them abundantly. But, verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be wasted. And therefore, verse 13, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments. That doesn't mean the crumbs. That means real fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above that which they had eaten. And I suppose that each one of the apostles, therefore, had one and that was a large. They have two Greek words for basket. One's a little old dinky thing. Another one's a fairly large one. And this word is a fairly, was a, this connotes a fairly large basket. And they filled up those baskets, 12 of them, with the fragments that, uh, that remained. And thus Jesus fed them. Now, we ask two questions. Was it a real miracle? I've already answered that. Yes, it was a real miracle. What is a miracle? Miracle by definition, a miracle is an event in the physical world effected by the direct and immediate power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Let me repeat that once more. A miracle, a biblical miracle, a biblical miracle um, is an event in the physical world, the material world effected by the immediate and direct power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Now, that's a biblical miracle. It's a miracle, number one, is an event in the physical world. The healing of the eyes, the opening of the Red Sea, the raising of the dead. The conversion of a sinner is a miracle, a supernatural event. But it's not a miracle in the technical sense of the word. Now, I hope you all understand what I'm saying. A miracle is intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. So the conversion of a sinner is a supernatural work of God. It is a miracle in the large sense of the word. But in the technical sense of the word, a miracle is an event in the physical world. Second, effected by the direct and immediate power of God. How does God normally govern this world? By secondary causes. How many people have been created directly by God? Three. Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Three of them. How have all the other millions and billions of people come into existence? By the secondary cause of conception. God normally rules this world by secondary causes. But once in a while, God interferes directly, bypasses secondary causes, interferes directly and performs a miracle. What, what happens normally to axe heads that are in water? They sink. That's a secondary cause. That's the law of gravity, which is a secondary cause. But in one case, an axe head floated. God intervened directly and immediately. And normally, dead men stay dead, secondary causes. But in a few cases, Jesus raised them from the dead. He interfered directly and immediately. Third, a miracle is intended to authenticate a message or a messenger, that that person is speaking directly, word for word, the words of God. And there are no prophets today in the biblical sense of the term. God is not authenticating. There are divine healings 
but no divine healer. Can God heal a hopeless case? Absolutely. Who would want to limit the power of God? If there's a hopeless case physically, if God so pleases, he can heal that person. God can work miraculously if it's his will. Normally, it is not his will. Normally, he takes that person home to heaven. But occasionally, God may be pleased to work directly and miraculously and restore that person to health. But if he does, that doesn't authenticate anybody that laid his hands on him, see, as a prophet of God. That doesn't authenticate anybody. And uh, normally God heals through secondary causes. What are secondary causes? A doctor, a physician, and medicine. But sometimes he wants to, he can intervene and heal directly. God pleases to. I don't deny divine healing. Nobody with any good sense would. If God is pleased to do it, he can do it. Though in most cases, he does not. But if he's pleased to, he can. There are divine healings, but no divine healers. So don't send your money to some of these men you hear on the radio, see. If they say they have the power to heal, or that God uses them to heal, they like to say it more humbly that way. I have great suspicion of their ministry. Because God isn't in the business of authenticating anybody today. I, you know, if, 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 if God has given the power to heal, Mark chapter 16, 15, and 16, then they ought to have also the power to pick up poisonous serpents and to raise the dead. And I don't see them raising the dead. Now, sometimes you hear a man say here in America that he raised somebody dead over in China or the Philippines or Africa. But you notice it's always about 3,000 miles away. And you never can get to him. And by the time you get to the guy to find out how it felt to be raised from the dead, you know what's happened? He's died again. See? So you never can authenticate him. No, divine healing, if God is pleased to, absolutely. I think that God undertook for me when I was invited to come here by Howard Goddard because the doctors had given up on me. If I may have a word of personal testimony, the doctors had given up and they had checked me out of the Methodist hospital in Houston and sent me on home to die. I think that God intervened and, and restored me to health and strength, a measure of health and strength. And uh, I have absolutely no doubt that God is, when it's his will, he is pleased to heal. Most of the time, he is not pleased. He lets us suffer with that illness the rest of our lives, or he takes us home to heaven. But sometimes it is his will to restore. If it is his will, fine and good. If it's not, fine and good. What Peter and James in Acts chapter 12, Peter and James, Acts 12, or James and Peter in Acts 12. Remember what happened to James? Herod took off his head. Both on put in jail. Both on put in jail. James got his head taken off, went home to heaven. Peter was released from prison supernaturally by the angel and lived another 20, 25 years. Now, I sometimes hear it said, more often than sometimes, that the church prayed for Peter but didn't for James. The Bible never suggests that. Why did James die? For one reason, it was God's will. Why was Peter spared? For one reason, it was God's will. See? God's providence operated in both cases. Whatever is the will of God may be done, will be done, and we have to be agreeable to that accept it. So here was this miracle. However, we got off on that. We got off on it by definition. Miracles and events in the physical world, the material world, affected by the direct immediate power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Was it a real miracle? Absolutely. When did the miracle occur? Well, we're not sure. But I suppose the miracle occurred in the process of breaking the bread. 
See, it could have occurred when the boy gave Jesus the bread. I don't think it occurred there. It could have occurred when Jesus broke it and gave to his disciples, or it could have occurred when the disciples were out distributing, that their baskets never ran empty. I tend to believe that their baskets didn't come empty, and they had to come back to Jesus again and again to get their baskets filled. I think the miracle took place when he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but that's my conception of it. Now, somebody disagrees with me. I just heard it. See? All right, now look at the last thing, the popular effect of the miracle, John 6, 14. And those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. What was the conclusion? Well, first, first conclusion is they saw the sign which Jesus did. They understood it. They understood this miracle pointed to Jesus. Their conclusion was that he was that prophet that's promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. That prophet that's described in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18 is a supernatural person, the Messiah. And they concluded that this is of a truth, that prophet, described in Deuteronomy 18. But they interpreted this kingship. Now, I hope you're listening carefully. They interpreted this kingship of Jesus only in terms of freedom from the yoke of Rome and not, first of all, freedom from the yoke of Satan. roll down to bowl over all the Roman soldiers and to establish the Jewish kingdom once again. That's what they wanted. And they were resistant to the idea of a spiritual uh, liberty. Well, they didn't agree that they were held captives by sin. So they didn't need spiritual liberty. And when Jesus began to talk to them about his being the bread from heaven and shedding his blood, and his body broken, and that you will have to eat my body and drink my blood, and I'm the bread sent down from heaven, give my life for the world. They didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. They repudiated him and walked away, left him. Now, I want you to, uh, I would like to ask you to listen carefully. When this happened, Jesus Christ was not discounted the fact that he was that he offered himself as the king. I think up commentaries by all millennials. And these men say, you see, Jesus didn't come to offer a material kingdom. He came only to offer a spiritual kingdom. There will be no material kingdom. No, that's not what Jesus objected to. What he objected to was that they interpreted that material kingdom apart from any spiritual revolution in their lives. So, when John the Baptist came, and when Jesus later came, John said two things, didn't he? Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what was the second thing? Repent. Repent. And the message of Jesus was the same. Repent. The kingdom will be at, is at hand. And in the tribulation, that's going to be the message of the They'll be preached. Two things. Look, there's the Lamb of God. And secondly, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, you better repent. And when Jesus wouldn't agree to them taking him and making him a king, he wasn't denying that he was going to be the king on this earth someday, as the amillennialists do. He was denying that his kingship was to be interpreted simply in terms of material security and national dominance without any spiritual revolution. He resisted that idea. All right, now what should we say by way of conclusion <clears throat> to this miracle? Here's an outstanding miracle, a very important miracle, although I tend to 
back away from saying that any one miracle is more important than any other. But this is an important miracle. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It's done at the peak of the popularity of Jesus. It's a watershed miracle. It's a spectacular miracle. And it provided an occasion to test his disciples. Now, I want to look at the lessons that we learn from this. want to look at the lessons that we learn from this. We learn, I believe, we learn, I believe, four, three or four lessons here. We learn, first of all, the almighty creative power of Jesus Christ. You learn the almighty creative power of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, if, if Jesus cured people that were blind, he was working on something that was there. If he cured a man in John chapter 5 that was lame, he was working on something that was there. But when he multiplied five loaves and two fishes, that was something that wasn't there. He took the five loaves and multiplied them to feed, what, 12, 15,000 people. That was a sheer miracle, which cannot be explained in psychological terms. See, the liberals tend to interpret these miracles in psychological terms. A man that's deaf, they say, had a psychological uh, impediment. Maybe his daddy shouted at him when he was a child. And to protect himself from his daddy shouting at him all the time, he was psychologically induced to become deaf. So he can't hear. And Jesus came along and said to him, Listen, although your daddy wasn't too good, he wasn't too bad. And uh, you've got a heavenly father, and he'll listen to you. Pop! He heard again. See? But there's no way you can pop and feed 5,000 men with five loaves of vision. See, there, that's impossible. And that's why the liberals deny these miracles. They do one of two things. They interpret some of these in psychological terms. The man that's, you know, crippled, he has a uh, psychological hang-up. Jesus soothed his psychological hang-up, and he came out okay. The nature miracles, like stilling the sea and raising the dead and uh, feeding 5,000, they can't handle them psychologically. So they say, well, that's not what actually happened. This is the popular folks today. That's not what actually happened. That's what the church 80 years later thought happened and read back into the story. See, the approach of the liberals today, which dominates most many seminaries, is that the four Gospels do not represent what actually happened, but represent the faith of the church, what the church thought happened. And therefore, they have to push the Gospels as far away as they can from 30 A.D. That's why they say that the Gospels are written toward the end of the first century. And the Gospels don't reflect what happened, but what the church thought happened. Represents the faith of the church. Obviously, we don't believe it. We believe they happened exactly as Jesus said. And these, this miracle demonstrates the creative power of Christ. Secondly, we learn a lesson on Christ, the bread of life. We learn a lesson on Christ, the bread of life. What did Jesus do with that bread? It was miraculously provided supernaturally it was broken secondly it was broken third it was sufficient for how many people yeah it was sufficient for everybody wasn't it sufficient for everybody and fourth what did they have to do in order for it to do them any good take it and eat it jesus christ is the bread of life four same thing number one He's the bread from heaven, supernaturally provided. Number two, in order to do me any good, Jesus had to be broken at Calvary. Third, his death is sufficient for all men. He died for all men. And fourth, however, in order for his death to do me any good, I must accept him and receive him. Many has received him. To them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
a third lesson we learn, and that's an invaluable lesson on Christian service. Now, do you see that in your outline? See that in your outline? Four words. What are those four words? Vision, provision or resource, distribution, and challenge. Let's look at those four. Four great words that epitomize the teaching of this story on Christian service. Number one is vision. Mark 6.34 and John 6.5. Vision. They looked on the multitudes, and what did they see? Trouble. Trouble. Send them away. We don't want to bother with them. Jesus saw them, and what did he see? Human need. What did he say? Help them. Now, may I ask you, how do you see people? How do you see people? How do I see people? I'm getting ready for my lesson on Monday night, and somebody comes into my office with a real serious problem. This happens all the time. Now, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, that's a real hard thing to cope with, you see. Well, that's a hard thing. And I have something planned, perhaps, to do on Sunday afternoon. And somebody calls up with a problem or comes over or calls me. What am I going to do? That's a real good test. What are you going to do? How do I look upon people who have human need? Maybe I'm not accessible to them at all. Jesus saw men in terms of human need. The disciples saw them in terms of trouble. They always did, not always but often did. John chapter 4, do you remember John chapter 4? Do you remember that? Did we study that? The men went in, the disciples went in the city, and they came back with what? Food. Gee, the woman went in the city, been saved only one day, less than one day. She went in the city, what did she bring back? Men who needed Christ. She saw the men who needed Christ, they saw the food. Jesus said, I have food to eat. You don't know I, I don't need this food. I need those men. Now, he wasn't discounting food, of course. How do I see people? Vision, 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 vision. If I'm going to go into the gospel ministry, then I must have a heart of compassion for people. We have to pray, and I do, because I tend to be, uh, you know, a little hard-hearted. And to isolate myself. My wife says you can tend to be anti-social, and I tend to be, I suppose, a little that way. And I have to pray this, see, that God will give to me a heart of compassion, or to say it another way, God will give me the heart of Christ, who looked out over a city and wept. He cried over the city. And he wept, Matthew 9, because he saw all these multitudes of sheep without a shepherd. And this has brought to me more realistically, I suppose, than any other previous time when I was over in India. Vision. How do I see people? Number two, provision, resources. Only Jesus Christ can give the bread that will satisfy. Only Jesus can meet the need. Third word is distribution. He will use us to distribute. Now, here's a basic principle in the Christian work. I wonder if you look here. Here's a basic principle. God does what he alone can do, and then he expects us to do what we can do and what he gives us power to do. There was Lazarus in the grave, dead. Who could give Lazarus life and bring him up out of the grave? Who could do that? Only God could do that. Only Jesus could do that. So Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. But when Lazarus came out, he was bound all around in grave clothes. What did the Lord say? Grave clothes, drop off. What did he say? He said to his disciples, go over and take them off. Which do you think had been easier to say? Grave clothes drop off for Lazarus rise from the dead. Why, both equally easy with Christ. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. He said that because nobody could do that. But he said, 
You take off his grave clothes because they can do that. So only God can provide salvation and redemption. I can't do that. But when it comes to telling the story of redemption, God doesn't leave it up to angels, does he? Why didn't God hook up a heavenly megaphone? Huh? Why didn't God, you ever thought about that? Why didn't God hook up a heavenly megaphone like the man that comes on the radio now dead but he used to own the Tennessee Hotel down there, a Lutheran, and had a very good idea. He reads the scripture. You've heard that. He reads the scripture 15 minutes a day. Why didn't God set up a heavenly megaphone and read the scripture to the Indians? Because that's the way he doesn't work that way. He uses human instruments to do what they can do. So he said, work out your own salvation. That is the solution to your problem. For it's God that works in you, both to do, will to do of his own good pleasure. God does for us what we cannot do. But God expects us to do what we can do and what he'll enable us to do. See? I can't give myself a mind or an IQ. God had to give me that. But you know what God won't do? He won't study the examination for me and take the test. Yeah, I got to do that. And that man next door that's unsaved, Jesus died for him. He wants to save him. Jesus Christ did for him what you and I can't do. But now, he's got, Jesus isn't going to walk next door and tell him about the gospel. You know why? You can do that. So he's not going to do that. That's a basic principle in the scripture. And that's what I mean by distribution. And then forth the challenge. Will you turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 18? Four words, vision, resources, distribution, and the challenge. Matthew chapter 14, verse 18. Really, you need to read it in all four Gospels to get the total picture. Matthew 14, let's begin at verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came and said, This is a desert place. The time is now late. Send the multitude away, that they may go in the villages and buy themselves food. Jesus said to them, They don't need to depart. They, you know, the disciples must have thought he was suffered from too much heat. <laughs> they don't need to depart. Well, they didn't ask him, but they think it wears all the food. They don't need to depart. Give the, you, now they really thought he was touched, see. You give them to eat. They say unto him, well, Lord, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. What did he say? Bring them. Yeah, bring them. You have hither? Bring them hither to me. What's the secret? Hither to me. Bring them hither to me. That's the secret. You bring to God what resources and abilities you have. God's doing the job of multiplying. Here was Moses. God called Moses. Moses said, oh, Lord, I can't. I can't. He gave five excuses in, in Exodus 3, 4, and 5. God knocked every one of them down. Last one, I can't speak. I can't speak. Moses may have had a hair lip. I don't know. But he had an impediment. He couldn't speak. God said, I'll give you Aaron. He'll be your spokesman. He knocked down all the excuses that Moses had. Moses learned a lesson. What God is looking for is what you do have, not what you don't have. Bring hither to me. Bring hither to me. Here was the lad. Five loaves, two fishes. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Absolutely ridiculous. The disciples thought it was ridiculous. You do too, except you know the ending of the story. But if you didn't, you would have said it's ridiculous. But what did he do? He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus did the miraculous. D.L. Moody sat up in the balcony of the church shortly after he was saved. Man preached that night, said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who's totally yielded to himself. And Moody sitting up the balcony said to himself, by the grace of God, I will 
be that man. We had that motto in our kitchen for years and years. And God took Moody, never went to Bible college, never went to seminary, never had any formal, real formal education, rough hewn out from the country, a shoe store salesman. God took that young boy and used him to lay two continents at the feet of Christ. Neil Moody. General Booth, near the end of his life, the founder of the Salvation Army, who won hundreds and thousands of men and women, boys and girls, to faith in Christ, was once asked by J. Wilbur Chapman, the great Presbyterian evangelist, at Northfield Conference that Moody founded. Chapman was about 45. General Booth was about 85. Chapman said to General Booth, General, you've had a long and useful life. 